Do you have any funny Vince stories or funny Reba stories that you want to share or not that you can talk about? <laughs> well, uh, well, you know, uh, Vince, he, when I, the first album I cut on him was When I Call Your Name. And he had just gotten off <sighs> RCA. And, Unbelievable uh, song. And uh, when he came to meet with me, he said, I want to change labels because RCA won't let me cut any more of my songs. And here's a song that I wrote that I think is a hit. And he played When I Call Your Name. And I said, man, if that's not a hit, I'd quit. <laughs> and so when we won Single of the Year, Song of the Year, and Album of the Year, we are walking out of uh, the Opry House, and I ran into Joe Galante. <laughs> and, and Joe had just dropped him, right? Yeah, so yeah. I said, Joe said, congratulations. I could tell it was with, hard to say, congratulations. I said, well, Joe, thanks for all that great artist development. <laughs> you did not. Yeah. You did not. <gasps> Do you know, I got myself in trouble at RCA because they were, they were putting all this money into Earl Thomas. And I'm like, Vince Gill is the one you should be backing, y'all. He's the one. So Randy Goodman says to me, when you've got Earl Thomas Connolly on the cover of People magazine, then we'll talk about Vince Gill. Plus, he's managed by Joe's wife. Yeah, yeah, you think? I got, I got so much trouble. I'm like, but he's the goods, man. Listen to his song. Well, and I went to sign Vince Gill, you know, uh, Bowen almost fired me over that. He said, tenors don't work in country music. Oh, man. Baritones work. Tenors don't work. He didn't sell shit over at RCA. And he didn't really sell a lot of records. He had some hits. Cinderella. He didn't want to tour, really, either. And and then so, uh, you know, but we ended up cutting just hit after hit after hit after hit. Oh, it was, it was magic. Yeah, it was good. I love that song, Colder Than Winter. Uh, and with uh, Mark O'Connor was playing on that. It wasn't a, it wasn't a single, but I love it. It was from the Things That Matter album. I always thought that was a beautiful song. And what about Reba? Got any good Reba stories? Well, well Reba, you know, she, she wanted to cut Fancy, and she said, you like Fancy? I said, I love it. She said, Bowen won't let me cut that. Would you cut it? I said, absolutely. That's the biggest hit she ever had. It's only a top 10 record, but it's the staple of her repertoire. Uh, but she said, you'll cut it on me? I said, yeah. <laughs> and I think back on it, I'm going, God, that's like a moment right there because that, that's the one record that I did on her. I did like five or six albums. That's, it's not even a number one record. It's the biggest hit she's ever had. And I had a lot of number one. Wasn't it, um, wasn't there, I, thought, I think there's a story I remember. Wasn't it uh, Whoever's in New England, she didn't like that song? Yeah, Bowen cut that on her. I don't know. I thought I heard the song that she... I thought it was that song and she really didn't want to sing it and so she sang it like really gritty and pissed it made her and star. it was a smash Boy, that's <laughs> so a, she didn't, she didn't that's want to her, sing that's it that's when her life changed yeah that changed you know yeah um, Tony we talked a little bit before before sitting down today and I said hey you want to talk about your accident and you said sure I, I will if you, if you want to and uh, I noticed one of the people one of the seminal people in, in this book of Paul 40 McCombs. people is Dr. Paul McCombs right. and I know Paul from being on the board of the Tennessee State Museum Foundation, as I was, too. which you got me involved with, thank yeah. you very much. And uh, and Paul was the surgeon who worked on you. Do you want to talk, talk a little bit about what happened with that? Well, yeah, you know, I, and how it changed your life. Uh, you feel any differently since? I oh, happened? absolutely. You know, I had like I've never been, I never had my I had my first drink when I was thirty two years old, and I'd never had a drink. And then as I got. Uh, into the business, I ended up dating a girl named Elise Lur, who was a wine sommelier at a restaurant, and so I got into really great wine. And appreciate it. And I just drank it seven days a week, and, and uh, 
was drinking way too much wine, and I was out in L.A. for a Naris meeting. You were with Garth Fundus? Garth Fundus. We went to dinner at a place in Santa Monica, and I got to the bottom. We just probably finished off two bottles of Bordeaux at dinner. And he had slippery shoes, right? Yeah, and I got Italian to three, three uh, steps from the bottom of the the restaurant in the lobby and marble floor and slipped and fell and cracked my head wide open. They took me to uh, UCLA Trauma Center. almost died. I had actually a bleeding traumatic brain injury. And, uh, and Paul McCombs, who was one of my wine-drinking buddies from Nashville, hopped on a plane and came out. He's a brain surgeon. And walked into the UCLA... Uh, Trauma Center went down to the ICU and saw the numbers on whatever they showed what your, with your brain. He said, if you don't operate right now, he's going to die in the next few hours. And they, and they said, who are you? And they kicked him out. He's walking out, and then on the way out, the head surgeon for UCLA Trauma Center, this brain surgeon, said, what's going on here? And Paul said, I'm a... I'm a friend of Tony Brown, he's in the ICU down, downstairs, and uh, he just had a brain injury, and if you don't operate on him right now, he's going to die. He said, well, let's just go down and check. So he went down and checked, and sure enough, he was right. And uh, I was in a induced coma for three months. Let's stop for a second. Did they let him operate on you there? No, or no, 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 he, he didn't operate he on didn't have. He didn't have... Uh, no, he just told the, the told brain surgeon. Told them to do it. So he, but he, he just came to make sure I was okay. Okay. So then when I came back to Nashville, they take the, your skull out of your head and put it in your stomach. So Paul is the one who ended up putting my skull back on my head. You're kidding. No. But uh, wow. I went back out to UCLA about a year and a half later. The, the surgeon wanted to meet with me to see how I was doing. And uh, he said, I heard that you were like 99% recovered. He said, I do a lot of surgeries out here, and a lot of them are from the south of the border, so I never know if they die or if they, if they recover. He said, but I, I just wanted to meet you. Uh, and I said, here I am. <laughs> I said, tell me, if Paul McCombs had not have showed up that night, would I have maybe died? He said, absolutely. He said, that was an angel on your shoulder that night. He said, wow. Yeah. Isn't that wow? And so I put him in my book uh, for that very reason. And then he's since very that, modest, you know, like because oh, I, I know it. I'd be like, you know, Tony. He's, he's so soft spoken. He's you know? very soft spoken. But you know, and I didn't quit drinking. Because uh, the first thing I asked was, should I stop drinking? Well, you could cut back a little bit. <laughs> so I didn't until like, uh, God, maybe five years later. Mm-hmm. 2008, I, I decided, no, 2009, I decided to stop drinking. When completely. did it happen? How long ago? This was 2003. Three? Yeah. yeah, that's right. April 11th, 2003. So I stopped drinking uh, this November, be 12 years. Congratulations. And, and, uh, you miss it? No, not at all. I miss the social aspect of drinking. Yeah. I don't miss, you know, you have to say you're an alcoholic, but I'm just an addictive personality. Everything sure. I like, I like a lot. Yeah. Like if I like cars, I like cars a lot. If I like jeans, I like a certain brand of jeans, I like 10 pairs of them 
Oh, ten pairs of those. Does your does your license plate still say busy? No, it does not. <laughs> but you know, it. I would walk through airports for a long time, and people, just strangers, would say, "Hey, I prayed for you." You know, I go, "Well, thank Every, you very the much." The whole town prayed for you. I mean, you. I didn't had had no I had no idea, you know. And then it was so shocking, Tony. It was, and you are so beloved. And everybody was like, oh, my word, you know. And I remember reading that, that, that you were and in the, a induced I, coma. I went to treatment, you know, in 2008, and uh, they asked you what your bottom was. And I don't have to say, that was my bottom, you mm-hmm. know, when you, when you finally. But I didn't know it at the time. Sure, sure. I didn't quit drinking for another two or three years. Sure. But that had to be my bottom because I kept asking people why I fell, and nobody would tell me. They were embarrassed to tell me that I was drunk because I was the president yeah. of Naris here in town and the president of MCA sure, Records. Sure. And it's so amazing how that works, you know. Well, I'm sure you were with other people having but, a cocktail too. So, yeah, but, you know. uh, and then I wanted to take a picture from my book of that, those stairs and Anastasia, my ex now, she was my wife when I was that happened. She wouldn't let me do it because she said, I, I, I'll, I'll freak out. So when I was doing my book, I asked Melissa, I said, let's go take a picture of those stairs. I want to see it. And it's a picture of that stairs where I fell. And I can't believe it's not very far. When you're trashed and you fall like three steps, and even though I'm five foot five, and you crack your skull, man. You play with playing with the devil right there. My father died. I had the same injury. Yeah. It's, it's, and they said, you know, I was going on, on the way to the emergency room, and the, it was to the Santa Monica emergency room. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys says, Hey, this is pretty bad. Let's take him to UCLA Trauma Center. And all those things happened. It was all like an angel, like a like God was watching over me. You know? Did you have a near death experience? Do you remember anything? Nope. All no, that stuff. Because I, I did. I had all. That. I didn't. I don't remember anything. I don't mm-hmm. remember. The first thing I remember is flying back. Reba flew me back on her plane. Her plane. And I was wondering, how would if I'd been a guy that worked at the BP station? How would I got back to Nashville? Because I had to fly back with a nurse. Because I had a IV and a trachea thing yeah and Reba flew me back on her plane yeah how does a record Joe get back he can't get on Southwest no you know I'm, I'm just thinking back all the lucky things mm-hmm. I remember when Reba all the said, blessings Reba said I'm gonna fly you back and I said you don't have to do that she said I'm doing it I said no you can't she said sue me <laughs> and she flew me back you know it just goes to show you this pe- this business that we're in the music industry especially in Nashville it's a people business. In fact, you and I were just talking about that. It's about relationships, man. That's why artists that end up like like Cheryl Crow came here, been around country music. It's a, it's a people. You have people. Your fans are relationships. Where in rock and roll, you don't meet your fans. No, you don't have a fanfare. No, you don't have a fanfare. No, you do not. And, and it's like relationships, you know. Like, uh, but don't you think that you got? We had Cheryl Crow moved here. All these. Um, LA people and from other parts of the country have moved here and I think they, they resonate with this sense of community. Oh, absolutely. And I, even Stephen Tyler when he did that little uh, what would you call that thing he did with Scott Bruschetto was the cutting a country album which mm-hmm. he has no business doing because he's a rock icon. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know he, he loved it here too. People loved him. You know, This, yeah, is, a, he, this is a cool town. I mean I, mm-hmm. I just love Nashville. When I die I'm going to be buried here even though I'm from North Carolina, I'm going to be buried right here. Do you think, uh, you speak to the sense of community, we're sitting on Music Row right now, um, and 
all around us, there have been tons of buildings knocked down. I've got these four buildings, and they're, they're old, historic buildings. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, they were all, you know what, Tony, there, there were five of them, and they were all really dilapidated. Horrible. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you the story, funny enough. I was looking for one building, and the buildings were about a half a million at the time, and I thought, well, they keep up in my rent. I need to just buy something. So... Um, I was with a realtor, and I said, "Find out, find out what these buildings." This is back in '93, and she looked at me like I was daft. She said, "Okay, Katie Gore owns them. Katie Gore is Al Gore's aunt, and she wants eight hundred thousand for the." And I said, "Well, how many buildings?" She said, five. I said, "Offer four. She took it. So then I had to renovate. I had to renovate them. So I had to call my my um." Attorney, and I said, "Would you do me a favor and move some money around, just because I had to renovate these buildings?" And he, he was like, "What are you doing?" Because I had just bought a house, and I come back to the office, and Bob goes to me, "Who the hell do you think you are, Donald Trump?" <laughs> what he said to me. This property is gold. Man. Well, it is, but I, I want to preserve it. You know, it's, it's, it's. You know, if you see these Save Music Row signs, that's me. You know, because yeah. I feel like it's a sense of community, and people drive by and they're like, "Well." You know, Sunday morning coming down was written in that building, and you know this person got their record deal here. And well, you, know, it's you could like re, you could re, uh, keep the buildings, the frames, mm-hmm. but just make them because these buildings are old, funky they're buildings. Funky, you know? yeah, they're fun. And you know, Garth did a great job. He bought Allen Studio across the street, and now he calls it Allentown. That's where we cut all all those hits. And he added. Probably quad well, he quadrupled the size of the building. He did a great addition to it, so the facade is the same. And you can do that; you can retrofit. You don't have to just knock them down, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm just I'm a preservationist. I, I love I feel the same way that you do. I love the community. I love the history. We've got a historic marker that I put up here that talks about all the different buildings and who cut where and yeah. different people. Bob well, Montgomery up the street here used to be up the street here. Yeah, yeah. yeah Randy so. Travis. Travis, absolutely. I mean, I can remember people would say, oh, I'll see you around the campus, and it sort of felt like a campus. It, it is the college campus, yeah. yeah. But do you feel the community is still here? Or, or oh, less, absolutely. Less no, so? it's still, no, it's still here. Just, yeah. It's just different people have home but studios it's like now. All of, you know, it's like a lot of us, I mean, uh, don't come down here much, you know. It's like it's all young people. But as long as we don't quit working, you know, we're going to be down here on, on occasion. You know, David Briggs still has his place down there. Right. And you want, and and to continue, you have something to give. Same thing. I still come to work because I feel like I have something to offer. And that's um, the only thing I miss. You know, I have my office at my house. I had an office in Chet Atkins' building, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was only taking about three meetings a week. And I thought that's the overhead I don't need, so I'm working at home. And I don't like it because I I want somewhere to go. You know. Just come over here. You can <laughs> you can meet right here. I mean, you know, but on Monday morning you go to the office and the girl downstairs. They're going, oh, it's Monday. And then on Friday, there is Friday. <laughs> but when you work out of your house, every day is kind of Tuesday. It's blur day. It's, it's, it's no, it's, no, no day feels like the uh, day it is. And then you know? add COVID to it, and it's even worse, yeah. right? So. I mean, yeah, between COVID and, and then the ice storm for a few days, man, I oh. started feeling like I was in oh, Russia or something. Oh, no. So, so um, Rory, have you got any questions, any more questions? I was just going to ask for maybe some advice that Tony might want to offer. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's the big thing we kind of ask everybody that, that comes on the podcast. Like, you know, we deal with a lot of independent artists. And, you know, being right up the street from Belmont and being, you know, there's probably 10 or more places you can think of off the top of your head of, like, people trying to break into the industry. Right. 
like how obviously we hit big on the relationship building and but what else can people do what avenues do you think there are for people today trying to break into the industry and how do they do that well you know i i think you just you just said one thing belmont college you you study you know, they have, they got a music college at mtsu which is a good one mm-hmm. but belmont's right on campus here and i've gotten a lot of my employees from there i even Lee and Womack came from there. It's a good place to start. One of your they, engineers you were talking about was from Belmont, right? Huh? One of your engineers you were telling me was from Belmont. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, I mean, engineers, singers, uh, A&R people. So college, that college itself it, is a music school, and it's right on campus here. And a lot of, uh, every summer, every label would go, let's get, get us a couple of interns from Belmont. Have you ever taught? Is that an area that you might want no, to? No, no. Would you ever want to? No, I don't think so. How could you be so good at it? You know, I, I spoke at a class over there uh, and made a real big faux pas. I said, you know, labels have funny sayings. I said, you know, like, we have a funny saying about curb records, like, crime don't pay, curb might. And somebody said, this is the curb bill. <laughs> I went, oh, forget I said that. Uh, so I, I think, you know, the college, I think you just got to somehow fit in and get in, do it for free. I mean, I got, I did so many things for free in the beginning, like cut, try, I couldn't produce. So somebody said, well, uh, will you play on the session and help me produce it? Mm-hmm. Just give me some, help me out. You know, I said, sure. And so I started doing that. And then people would say, Hey man, you're a producer. I remember this guy used to work at Word Records. He was the head of A&R for Word Records, the biggest gospel label at the time, which are now owned by Curb. He signed his first black artist, Shirley Caesar. Oh, yeah. And he wanted me to play on the session because he knew me from the Oak Ridge Boys days. And he said, hey, you're playing, but will you help me? Because, you know, she will respect you. She won't respect me. And so I ended up helping him. And we won a Grammy. We won a Dove. And... All of a sudden, that was my first, I didn't make any money. It wasn't about money, just getting your name on that record, you know. Mm-hmm. And when you went a Grammy, having your name on that little plaque, whatever. So just getting involved, you know. Mm-hmm. You've got to get involved either by way of going to college and becoming an intern, uh, getting to know people at that ground level. Like independent artists are perfect. Because, you know, to me... Uh, that's, that's where the heart of the next wave is, is in independent artists. That's why I think Americana, the genre Americana, is becoming a new source for new country acts. I mean, J- yeah. Jason Isbell, Brandon Carlisle, Sturgill Simpson, used to... That goes back to the authentic... Yes, it's authentic, authenticity, you know. Grass, that, the grassroots that comes up. And they don't, you know, they, they don't try to cut hit records. But Brandon Carlisle, she's been there for 10 years. She writes one song called A Joke, and it's a, it's a hit. All of a sudden, she's mainstream now, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And most Americana artists go, ooh, don't sell out. Mainstream. She embraced it. You know, mm-hmm. She got in the high women, and she's got so involved, and she's like, she's a blessing to this uh, country music industry as a woman because she's, you know. She's very true right, to absolutely. herself, though. She's comfortable in her own skin. Yeah, and, and she's well-spoken, you mm-hmm. know, and... and, and uh, once you get mainstream, you sort of start compromising so much you lose who you are. Right. But Americana artists are like, they're bold. You know, they, they make a living doing 
not answering to those are gatekeepers at radio, terrestrial radio. Right. You know, and so uh, just find out ways to get to know people. You know, networking is an old cliche, but that's exactly what it is. Got to get to know people. Right. Get to know you. Get to know Pam. And uh, and if she, they get to know you, they say, "Here you work for Pam Lewis. Can I meet her?" Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's good. They should. I'll, I'll set up they'll, they'll know. They'll know who she is. You know. Yeah. And, and uh, I remember when I was at, I was at in Chet Atkins' building. A girl came down. She was writing a her thesis on as a record producer about record producing, and she came to my office wanted to interview me because she knew I was a, heard I was a successful producer. And she said, I love your office. I said, this was Chet's old office. She said, Chet who? I said, Chet Atkins. Oh, my word. She said, who is that? Who is that? I said, you don't know who Chet Atkins is? She mm -hmm. said, no. Help me out. I said, well, he's the reason there's a music pro. Do you know who Owen Bradley is? She said, no. Mm -hmm. I said, do you know who Billy Sherrill is? No. Do you know who Fred Foster is? No. I said, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said, I'll finish my, my uh, interview with you, but you got to know. I'm here because of them, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. I steal Billy Sherrill ideas on a record, and somebody goes, <laughs> "I know where you got you stole Billy Sherrill's modulation on that." That's and you know, it's just to get to, get to know the players, and the players don't mean musicians. It means know the pluggers. Like it. when I was at MCA, there were four pluggers that I thought were good: Carl Wallace, Dale Dodson, Knight Owens. And uh, maybe uh, Cheryl? Huh? Cheryl Blackman? No. No. Actually, Sarah Canavy worked at, uh, she's mm -hmm. at Broken Bone now, at A&R. Because, you know, know the players, know the pluggers, know the publishers, know the writers, know the musicians, know the musicians who want to be a session player but can't get in. Find all the people who can't get in, and you're one of them. And y'all get in, <laughs> you know. So let me go one step further, because I'm, I'm kind of sitting here flying on the wall between you guys talking and hearing things like uh, president and executive director and, you know, award-winning Grammys, all this, like, all these words that are buzzwords that right. people in the industry working their way up are, like, you know, the epitome of achievement. So how, what are the things you stuck to that made you successful? What are those attributes? Well, you know, I, as a musician, I finally decided uh, after... Elvis died. I ended up playing with Amy Lou Harris, and then Amy got pregnant. So Rodney Crowell was in the band. So he started a group called the Cherry Bombs, and mm -hmm. within that Cherry Bombs, I met Vince Gill and all these people, you know. And then when that was over with, Roseanne Cash got pregnant, and I was going, to, you know, I got to get a real job. I need to get a job in the record business. So I went to David Briggs who had given me a job plugging songs, who at the time, you know, now there's about 10 rhythm sections in town that play on, like there's some that play on Danny and Shay, there's different ones that play on John Party. Like the ones that play on John Party play on Luke Combs, play on that group. And then there's that group that play on Dan and Shay and Marion Mars, they're a different group. Can Almost. you spot them? Like when you hear a record, can you say, I know that's... No. You can't. Okay, no. I'm just curious. Not, not anymore. Mm -hmm. Used to. But there's about five different rhythm sections, and some players, like Tom Bukovac, a guitar player, kind of moves amongst those. Mm -hmm. But pretty much it's a little little tribe of people. Mm -hmm. And back when I, I quit playing, 
there was a group called the A-Team, which is the, ver- the version of the Wrecking Crew. Have you seen, ever heard of the Wrecking Crew? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You seen that movie? I don't think I've seen the movie. You need to watch that movie. Okay. It's about, it's, it, I was interested because I was heard Glenn that. Glenn Campbell was in the Wrecking yeah. Crew. Yeah, and mm-hmm. Hal Blaine mm-hmm. and all those guys. Uh, and so, David Briggs had a publishing company gave me a job plugging songs. It's, I needed a job. He was the other keyboard player with Elvis. He played he played electric piano and clavinet, and I played acoustic piano. So I told him, I said, man, I need to get a job at a record company, like an A&R job, because that's like when you look for artists and songs, and I can do that. That's what I, I could feel creative. He said, man, I'll get you a job with... Uh, I'll get you a job with RCA because uh, Jerry Bradley's opening a new label in LA because uh, the RCA Nashville just had that Outlaws album that went platinum, the first platinum country album. And they gave him a pop label and they want him to hire all these guys from New York and LA mm-hmm. and he's, he's such a redneck, he won't have it. He said, <laughs> I'll tell him to hire you. He will and he did. So I got the job, moved to L.A. How long were you in L.A.? How old was it? 78. How, no, how long? How Two long? years. Just, did you enjoy L.A.? Huh? Did you like it? No, but I'm glad I lived there because I learned how to get around. Sure. And, and you know, I met a lot of people I still have relationships Relationship with, with today. But, uh, but they, I think you're a likable person. They closed the label, and, and then uh, he said, and Jerry Bradley said, you can stay out there. He thought I would because he always thought I was, like, so hip. I said, no, I want to come back to Nashville. So I came back to Nashville mm-hmm. and worked in the country division. And I, and I was a manager. That's the lowest level you get on the A&R. You know, you're a manager, then you're uh, a director, then you're mm-hmm. executive director. Then a couple years later, maybe you might VP. get to be VP, and then maybe senior VP. So I was a manager and uh, for like two years. And just before Bowen hired me I signed a group called Alabama mm-hmm. and they were nobodies but they played a show here and everybody in town was just biting at them they had a record out already out it was sort of selling down in Alabama and Myrtle Beach and stuff so Juggalani said go get that get that record we'll put it on RCA so I did and they were the biggest group for mm, the next five huge. or six years so I became like but you didn't produce them Harold Shad no, produced them no I just signed them just sign them. And, and would, would you, they wouldn't let you produce them? Did you want to produce no, them? No, I didn't want to produce them. Okay. I mean, I wanted to produce at RCA. They wouldn't let me because I hadn't produced anything. Oh. You don't have a track record. I went, I how do you get a track record if you don't get well, an yeah, opportunity? Right, right. So Nora Wilson let me co-produce two Steve Warner songs. He was doing Steve Warner. He said, well, finish these last two songs with me. And the first thing we did together was the number one record. And we all know what Nora said about you. I know. You wouldn't be shit without me. <laughs> so anyway, so I became an A&R guy, successful. And then I thought that Bowen had heard my Steve Warner record and thought it was great, but he hadn't. He lied about it. Not but, Bowen. But, but Bowen said, I'll, you come over here, man. I'll make you a VP, and I'll let you co-produce with me, and I'll turn you into a great producer. And he did. He followed So you went from manager all the way to VP. Yeah. and then I became Then I became senior VP. Then I became executive VP. Then when Bowen went to Capitol, I became president. There you go. Just stayed there through 25 years, yeah. Wow. Awesome. Unbelievable. It's crazy. I feel like it all comes back to who you know. And it's you it's, it's really, you know, it's who you know. It's those old sayings like networking and who you know seems to be old cliche stuff. It's true. It's just 
how you look at it. Like who you know used to be like, yeah, who are you fucking, right? You know, mm-hmm. no, but it's, it's who you know and who knows you because I remember the first time David Briggs gave me go plug songs. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, okay, here's your first plug. Go pitch this to Tom Collins. He's doing Millsap. I'm playing on the session. This would be a great song for Millsap. Mm-hmm. So I go to Tom Collins' office, which is just down, used to be down the street here. Yep. I walk in. I said, uh, I'm here to see Tom Collins. And the girl at the desk, there was like, several people in the room. The girl at the desk said, he's not here. I said, well, I got a song I want to play for Ronnie Millsap. And she said, well, just leave it with me. <laughs> I said, so can I make, a, make an appointment? She said, just leave it with me. I said, okay. I left it. I go to like a, a ball game, like a charity ball game for like homeless puppies or something. <laughs> and everybody's playing, all the record executives. And they said, next up to bat, Tom Collins. And he was standing right there when I was in the office. <laughs> you just didn't know it was him. No, I didn't know who he was. So she was lying. She was lying. I was going, so that's how it works. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But I didn't hold it against him. I gave it. I gave him some shit when I got a little bit more famous. And I said, yeah. remember? I remember you. Yeah. He said, he just, I don't remember that. I said, no, I'm of sure Of course he wouldn't remember. But I, I remember, remember. Yeah. He's not here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And But Tom, you know, at the time, Tom Collins and Jerry Crutchfield, Bob Montgomery, they were the big guys, man. Mm-hmm. And David Briggs put all those. So David got me my job with the RCA because mm-hmm. of him. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and after... Elvis died. Amy Luke called David Briggs because Glenn D had. I got the Elvis gig because Glenn D quit Elvis and I was on the tour with the boys, right? So I just got the job. I just slid into his seat. When Elvis died, I was like, and he left it, Elvis to go with Amy Luke. When I, Elvis died, I, like, I get home, I'm plugging songs for Briggs, and uh, Amy Luke calls him. To play because mm-hmm. Glenn D's left. He said, "I don't. I'm not going to tour anymore." But Tony Brown might. Wow. So, right says, place, right time, right, and says, recognize the opportunity. Right. So, he says, so I went out and tried out for Amy Lou. Got the job. So I just sat in the right seat. Sat with you know Bowen at MCA mm-hmm. in the '89 and '97. Well, that's that's the guard here. That was a great time. That's yeah. Sound scan. Oh my God. That's what sound that scan was came such. On. It was magic. Tony Brown, thank, thank you. you for being a part of... Oh, I'm getting a hug. I'm getting a hug from a, the legendary Tony Brown. Well, we're all clean. Thank you for being a pl- plaudible perspectives. And nobody... Yeah, yeah good style. Like, like Isn't he good? Yeah, good you. hair and everything. Thank you. I try. That's all important. He's a New Yorker like me.